We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn this thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, it's me, Miles, and DR talking about all the news that you don't know for the past week. And then I sit down with authors Mark Lamont Hill and Todd Brewster to talk about their new book, Seen and Unseen, Technology, Social Media, and the Fight for Racial Justice. We chat about the legacy of Ida B. Wells and the evolution of communication tools within the Black Liberation Movement. I learned a lot, and you will too. Here we go. My advice for this week is actually a shout out to a campaign that we are running at Campaign Zero, and it's about Rikers Island. You can go to RikersIsland.org and learn more about all the things that are happening. People are dying. There have been, I think, seven people that have died in 2022. We are trying to get the judge to appoint someone to oversee the jail now to have more power to make sure that the deaths stop before Rikers closes in 2027 or 2028. Remember, the reason that Rikers, the jail in New York City, matters is that's the second largest jail in the United States. Uh, and if we can close that, we can close anything. So go visit RikersIsland.org. Other than that, make sure that you protect yourself. This has been a rough couple weeks. It's been a rough, you know, decade, I feel like. But this past couple weeks has been particularly intense with the shootings and the hate crimes and everything else. So please uh, protect your sanity. Go be around people you love and remind everybody that we got each other. Here we go. Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Diara Ballinger. I'm Miles E. Johnson. You can find me at Instagram and Twitter at Pharaoh Rapture. And this is DeRay at DIY on Twitter. So sometimes it is painful to be the person that kicks us off because I feel like it is now the second week in a row that I've had, that we've kind of led the conversation around a mass shooting. So we just, you know, a couple of weeks ago talked and thought and felt around Buffalo. And now here we are this past week with babies being killed in Texas. And now, you know, there's all the controversy swirling around the police response and or lack of response. Parents somehow getting into back doors to get their own babies out of the building. And then, you know, also the response from the GOP in terms of, oh, well, if the back doors would have been locked or if they had a armed guard, yada, 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 this wouldn't have happened. Um, We also know that the NRA had their national convening in Houston that's happening actually right now over the weekend and, um, you know, protests galore there to the NRA and everything that they stand for. So, you know, I I don't still still processing this, still processing Buffalo, still processing, I mean, all of the master shootings that have been happening, I guess, my whole adult life. And, and really trying to find levers of accountability for it, right? Like, what does that look like? What does it look like to hold policy 
makers accountable because at this point um, we we need solutions and we need solutions that the administration is going to be serious about. We need solutions that are really just going to be steadfast against whatever the GOP or the, the gun lobby continue to persist with. So kicking us off there, what are y'all thinking? Obviously and definitely still processing it, but I just think that it would just be a failure to think of the one person who went into the school to sh- to to shoot as the only murderer in these situations. How I see it, how I personally um, think of, think about these mass shootings, and it's so and how I how you know I was born when Columbine happened. You know, like I've kind of dealt with this my whole life or the idea of this like my whole life. I can't think of a moment where there's been two or three years where there hasn't been a mass shooting. And I've always thought that, you know, the people who are allowing this to happen are murderers too. And I always thought that the people who are allowing this to happen and facilitating this um, to happen are evil, that they're, they're bereft of, of, of a moral compass and that's who le- who's leading us. And we're being, lead- we're being led by villains. We're being led by people who do not care, who want to control women's bodies, who want to criminalize racial minorities when they get to when they when they get upset about and about rioting and then they want children to die. And I think that if this was a movie directed by Steven Spielberg, it wouldn't be hard for us to think of these people as villains and evil people. And I think that that's how that's how I see it. The voting rhetoric, the things that we talk about as far as what we're gonna do protesting i'm sorry i'm like like flustered by this conversation but the voting rhetoric the things we talk about doing protesting i think that sometimes we miss the point that there are people who are soulless who are in control of the destiny of this nation and i just don't understand how i was just uh, listening yesterday about the 11 year old child discussing how she had to cover herself and her friend's blood in order to play dead now what i thought to myself was horrendous circumstance but what kind of minds are we creating that you could even think to do that i wasn't if i was an 11 if i was 11 i would not even think to do that we're living in a world where 11 year olds are so sophisticated and they know their lives are so um uh, so so fragile and we live in such a violent country that their instincts are now that's a part of their instincts before before they're 13 that's a wild situation. A wild situation to me. That's a wild. That's that. And I would just be disgusted to have these people in control. You know. And I and I also wonder. And I wanted to like maybe present this to you all. Of course, I believe in um, gun control. Of course, I believe that we shouldn't have um, these weapons. The, the weapons that we have. But I also wonder. Do you think that like global warming, we're getting to a place where it's too late? that there's a time control over uh, or the time period of, over like how long we have to like kind of like save this and sa- save this world i'm wondering if the the kind of people that we're that, that that we're socializing people to be and combined with the the black market of stuff and how many guns are already made like even if tomorrow we fix this problem do you think that it would be like it would be too late because I look at all the other numbers that people put up against, and we had two hundred eighty-eight, and this country had four and eight and stuff like that. I'm wondering if tomorrow we fix this and we totally say nobody can else have this weapon, how long will we even 
would it take for us to not even see the um, results of this, you know, and just and to see and see impact? I'm wondering again, like global warming, like certain types of um, uh, sectors of like black health and stuff like that. I'm wondering if we're reaching a point where oh, America's always going to be insanely dangerous and violent, and it's always going to be piloted by white supremacist terror because we waited too long to regulate it. So I think a, a couple of things. I don't think it's too late. I think that you know. I, I think about the world of tobacco and so many other things that we were like, well, you're just screwed and, you know, seatbelts. It's like the idea that there were no seatbelts at one point in history is so wild. Like seatbelts feel like such a basic thing, but there was like a lot of campaigning to happen to make seatbelts be required in cars. And, you know, magically people stop dying. There are a couple of things that stick out to me when I think about the shooting in Texas. One is one of the biggest ones is just how much the police lied. I mean, it's like, the, when you chart the lies of the police and whoever thought that it would be a school shooting that would lead to such sustained critiques of the police from a host of people, like not the activists, not the advocates, not people like us who like have a perpetual critique, but so many privileged white people, people are like, yeah, this doesn't make sense. And remember to just map the lies. First, they said that there was exchange of gunfire between the officer uh, and the gunman before he went in. Then they said, just kidding, there was no exchange of gunfire, but there was an encounter. Then they said there was no confrontation at all. The gunman just walked into the school because somebody left the door open. And then the last account, uh, this past Friday, they said that a school police officer was not on the campus, but rushed there after the 911 call. And like you saw the videos of the parents being arrested, the parents being threatened with tasers as they tried to get into the school. They were outside the school watching or listening to their children be killed. The story of the border patrol officer who was in the barbershop getting a haircut. His wife texts him like, you know, there's a gunman. I love you. He he gets the gun from the barbershop guy races to the school, gets past the rest of police officers, gets into the school, saves his child, and then rescues that class of kids. And you're like, the police have lied so incredibly that it makes me think that this is just the tip of the iceberg, that like, I feel like they are, they must be hiding something else. So when I hear conversations about exchange of gunfire, it's like, well, did the police shoot a kid by mistake? You know, like what, what actually happened in that room? Or the narrative that we also heard, right, is that the police uh, did not go into the room for an hour because they were like, he just barricaded himself in. It's like, it's a room full of fourth graders. And the most heartbreaking part of it all was the 911 calls. And I'm, I'm assuming both of you, um, both of you have heard of the, and Miles, do you know about the 911 calls? No. Mm-mm. Oh, Miles. So uh, it was 93 minutes that the police were on the premises and, and let the kids get killed. But Miles, the most heartbreaking part of it all is that they have the 911 calls from kids in the classroom calling 911 saying, he's here, come help us, please. Like kids keep calling and calling and the kids don't survive. And it's like, that is, I mean, truly wild. And, and you know, the state police have blamed it on the, the like guy on the scene you know, the head of the um, police department there. And, you know, the only reason that somebody went in is because a federal officer, but they had gotten there by that point. And the the federal officer was like, okay, we're just going to like ignore the local police and storm the room and kill the guy. Like, we're not going to, like, we just have to do this at this point. But if you remember, the first story was that he had, um, 
a bulletproof vest on. That was the first story. And then it came out that he didn't have a bulletproof vest on. And you're like, the police really just let those kids die. And that, to me, is probably one of the wildest things. The second thing I'll say, and Miles, this goes to something you you touched on in DR2, is that there is something really insidious about the way that ignorance has become even more of a potent political tool. So, like, you know, we saw it with tobacco. It's like, tell people that it's not dangerous. Tell people that it's just like, nicotine's not really doing anything to your lungs. It's just like, da-da-da. And it's like, what happens with gun control where you know, Congress can't study it and da-da-da-da. Like you like, you limit the opportunity for people to even understand how dangerous it is. So you see Ted Cruz and Trump talking about, we need to have stronger doors. And you're like, well, that's not that. That is sort of wild. Or what happens when you go to Fox News and see the way they talk about it, which is, you know, half the country's watching that. They're not even highlighting the police inconsistencies. They're sort of making it sound like, you know, the governor, I don't know if you saw this, DR, you probably saw it, Miles, I don't know if you saw it, is that the governor's blaming the teacher. The, the governor's sort of response is like, the teacher left the door propped open. And if the door wasn't propped open, the governor, I mean, the gunman wouldn't have gotten in. And you're like, is that really our takeaway from this? Because that seems sort of wild. Um, the last thing I'd say, too, is about gun control that I do think this is a moment for organizers to help people understand better what the options are. Because I, you know, I organize around the police all day, but like, I don't really know, is it background checks? Is it the assault weapons ban? Is it all of them? Is it like, I don't know what the range of things are that we should be doing. And I have had to remind people that there was a ban on assault rifles that like Clinton did, and it worked. And the ban expired, and the Republicans wouldn't put it back in. But there is no reason why we should have guns that even the police are afraid to engage people with. And the, just the last thing that I have to like say about this is I remember waking up, and I'm not... <laughs> it's a controversial take. But I remember waking up to Trump. It seemed like every other morning Trump was doing something horrendous and doing something where I was like, I did not even know a president can do that. I did not know, like, just getting things moved. And I'm, and I really do sometimes wish that the Democratic Party would have the same ballsiness around children's lives. I wish that they would push it to the, to push it to the edge of what can happen. Because if that was happening around, I remember like, wait, I remember the day we like um, waking up when we found out about the, the border control and the kids in cages and the, and the, and, um, and the ban on like Muslims and all these other things where I'm like, I didn't even know you can like do this and, and, and have to retroactively like, Fixed it. I didn't. Even, I did not know that that was even a presidential power to do it like that. And I'm like, why can't we do that? And again, this is like emotions and passion talking too. But I'm like, if there was any time to stomp on some 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 niceties and some and some liberties, it will be now in situations like this. And I I don't know if I. I I do feel like sometimes we're being led by um, cowardice and I wish it wasn't like that. Miles, I think so much of what you're saying is right. And I've been thinking a lot about the Democratic Party as someone who spent many, many years, you know, working on presidential elections, supporting the DNC, knocking on doors, just about all of it. And I think in all of my experience, with the Democratic Party, it was always clear that, to your point, we would never push the envelope, right? We would never be truly outspoken on issues that concern people of color and marginalized peoples because we didn't want to upset white moderates, right? And so I think 
when it comes down to it, it's more about winning elections and people keeping their seat. And some of these people have been in seats for a very, very long time. So it's more about holding on to that power than it is actually, you know, creating systemic social change that that would take us out of these situations. And I see time and time again, particularly the Democratic Party. I mean, I've never seen an industry where people fail up so often. And it's like the same people get hired to do the same bad job. And everyone wonders why we're here, you know, and I'm hoping that, you know, some shakeup starts to happen before the midterms, because truth be told, like, we're we're going to be in a really, really tough spot. I mean, you know, the the right is organizing like nobody's business. They're coordinated. They have tons of money. They have Facebook in their pocket. They're soon to have Twitter in their pocket as well. <laughs> so I think we are just in a whole lot of trouble culturally. And we just shouldn't be like a Twitter Facebook or TikTok away from mass shootings. I think that's the right. biggest. <laughs> yeah. And I think to your your earlier point, Muslim, I mean, the, you know, an 18 year old in Texas can buy an AR-15, but can't buy a beer. You know, like that makes zero sense. So I think the policy part of it is critically important because these last shootings, it's been young folks with these with these. I don't even know what what you call highly automatic, right? I don't know. Big ass, big ass guns. Okay. So, I mean, I think that somebody got to do something. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just concerned that like what worked in the Clinton era and I hear you and I'm, and I'm oriented towards optimism and hope anyway. So I love um, DeRay's um, response, but I do think that sometimes we'll see what happened worked in the past where I'm like, it's 2022. It's a, it's a new day and a new evil. And then, and, and yesterday's answer to evil won't be today's. And I, and, and, and I, just as a critical thinker, I sometimes think like, oh, are we, kidding ourselves by trying to do what we did 20, 30 years ago and it works because now it seems like, you know, people are being socialized different. The internet is a newbies, how people are coming to their belief systems, the, the, the black market, how people are getting, um, getting all types of different things. It's different. And I'm just wondering, is there so much being manufactured in, in the world now that, you know, we might not see a change in our lifetime, even if we change it tomorrow. And I think, you know, it's pessimistic, but I, I think it's something to think about and, and something to organize against. And to, it, it, start, it, the un, it starts with the uncomfortable thought to me. You know, it's not the most optimistic right. thought, but it starts there in order to arrive at any solution. But, but Miles, I would argue that's why we all do what we do. Oh, absolutely. Even in, even in our different spaces, right? So I think, I think the culture of it is super, super important. Like, the, I think, to me, the culture is more important sometimes in the advocacy part, right? Because culture is really how, how you're moving folks. And I, was, I just was having this conversation with some friends the other day because I remember when I was little and I used to have those candy cigarettes that you would, the, the smoke would me blow too. out of. And I was like, why would my mom buy me candy cigarettes? And they weren't expensive either. You could go no, get a whole. No, they set were the bomb.com. And I'm just like, why was that? But again, it was it was like, oh, it was, you know, it just wasn't even something you thought about like that. Now, I mean, I'm sure that I'm sure it's not even on the market anymore to be able to get that. So, you know, we can hold two things at one time. We can hold pain and joy at the same time. So, 
Miles, you want to take us into something joyful? Or I suspect you think it's joyful? I don't know. Yeah, I think that's the that's the human, spiritual, psychological project is to be able to look at light and darkness and be like, we're all of it. But I'm here bringing the lightness. You know, my, 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 my femme queer self is just giddy. My femme queer 12-year-old, 8-year-old self is just giddy because Laverne Cox got a Barbie. And Barbie, I was so, you know, I went on a true binge of of Barbie. Barbie started as um, a, like a fashion model. I did not know that Barbie started as a fashion model who would literally, different uh, designers like Givenchy and Christian Dior would actually make these like exclusive Barbies for, for these children. And then Barbie was specifically marketed for very privileged white kids. In my head, Barbie was all, always a little bit more democratic to me. Like everybody can get a Barbie or it was available for everybody. But it really started as... Um, um, people who are children, you know, young girls who are children of people of means and of privilege, they will want these Barbies. And that's how come the Barbies were so fancy and they started as fashion models. And then as we go, now we have size inclusive Barbies. We have Barbies that um, do different jobs. We have Barbies that are um, different races. And now we have Barbies that are representative of trans people and I'm so happy went to Laverne Cox because I just stand her I love her so much I started seeing her I just think that it's I, I love a I love a I love a double persona I love somebody who like refuses to be like siloed into one box so I love that she was like an orange is new black and then I'll see her like seeing opera on her Instagram and she and she'll be doing that and then she knows about pop culture and then I've really started really loving her because she has these ser- she did um, a talk um, with the late Bell Hooks and I just fell in love with her mind and she was just so sharp when it came to feminist and cultural critique and I just thought that was beautiful and I love that she's like yes I talked to Bell Hooks I was on orange is new black I acted in Anna Delvey um, I can sing opera i'm also a showgirl and then also i have a barbie like where i can i can do whatever i want to do and i love that and it warms me up to see it and she celebrated her 50th birthday and it was barbie themed and then i was there in pink spirit um <laughs> and i just i don't know it just it really it really warmed my heart um of course and then speaking of the other half of it it's just like representation has its limits <laughs> and i think that sometimes we we as black people we as black queer people can represent ourselves into into a hole sometimes i'm like okay well child here we are you know that what is what's really moving but i also think that representation could be liberatory so i'm holding both of those things because i'm so excited and giddy about it because she's a black trans woman with a barbie who i adore but then also i try to chin check myself and say you know what what like what what does that mean like in 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 in, in, in what really changes but you know for now I'm buying the Barbie. <laughs> I was I, I've always loved Laverne and I remember um, years ago we had lunch like maybe in the middle of Orange's New Black but it was also in the middle of the protests and I had never got a chance to really watch the show because we were outside all day. Um, but it's been cool to see Laverne like just stay so true to herself and like, and just not let up, you know, just like, like not only I am who I am, but I love being able to have such incredible range and I love it. I saw the Barbie announcement on Twitter and was like, okay, Barbie. Okay, Laverne. I'm still shocked by the first of anything though. Like I, I don't know. I just assumed that there had been a trans Barbie before like that. Like, especially in this moment, like, I was like, oh, I thought we did this a couple years ago. And then I was like, oh, my goodness, Laverne, look at you, groundbreaking. So shout out to Laverne. 
Also, if you just go on her Instagram and look at her as Barbie in a box, you'll die. Amazing. All I have to say. And how can we get invited to her next birthday party? I'm like, come on. (laughs) Like, we right here. I like pink. Come on, come on. We need we need non-binary representation. We need we need we need uh, podcast representation. Come on, everybody. We'll show up in, in the box with our little microphone, our pink microphones. That would be cute. That would be cute. That would be cute. Yes, it would. Don't go anywhere. More politics the people's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Okay, I'm going to jump into my news, and it's very fast, and mostly because every Black person has already seen it. It's about Walmart making their Juneteenth flavored ice cream, which was also so many. Okay, these, so I just like kind of saw the headline, and I was like, oh, whatever. I'm not even, I'm going to leave it alone. But then, of course, I spiraled and like started reading about it. First of all, the packaging is just ugly. Second of all, it's cheesecake and red velvet, which I'm also offended by. And the thing I'm most offended by, I mean, white people really need to have a meeting. They need to have a meeting. Walmart, it's okay. So on behalf of Walmart, this Balcom, Balcom Corporation, it's a food and beverage company. They applied to trademark Juneteenth. White people. Y'all can't do that. Oh, my goodness. No need to barbecue because hell is a hot place. First of all, we just got the national holiday last year. We just got it. And y'all want to trademark it? Marcus Garvey is rolling his grave. I cannot. No, he's even. not. He said, I told y'all. I told y'all to get on that boat. I told y'all to get on that boat and buy them bombs. I told y'all. <laughs> Did you see the napkins? It, this was not about Walmart, but the other Juneteenth stuff that came out on the same day. The napkin said, it's the freedom for me. Chow. <laughs> Let me stop saying chow before I start seeing red solo cuts with chow. <laughs> I just feel like, here's the other thing, white people. Black people have been celebrating this, celebrating, memorializing, acknowledging, whatever you want to call it have been doing it for many, 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 many years. We don't need y'all's party favors. That's what we don't need. We don't need it. 
We don't need it. I don't know why. It's the freedom for me. Just took the cake. It, no. It's the freedom for me. And you know they but thought they were doing who has freedom, though? Like, Where we have freedom? People that... Who has freedom? And, Nobody. And, and it's, it's just the... Cu- so, speaking of... <laughs> speaking of Laverne, right? And speaking... So, speaking of Laverne and the Barbie, the other thing... I have to think about things like this, because these, these are not super unrelated and i think yeah. so so it's one of those things where it's a very tight rope of where where it becomes um beautiful and representative and when it, when when it becomes a white capitalist uh like nightmare and you're like i cannot believe it and i was talking to my friend i was like you know what i think that so many holidays specifically um political holidays in with white people have been about smudging and softening what's going on and you're like well we're gonna do george washington day and we're gonna do make it a sale about couches and barbecues and, or whatever it is and we're gonna forget that you know like tell him to smile and ask him whose teeth he was and you'll be really disturbed about how like who this person really was and i think that this holiday juneteenth as a national holiday we don't need the softening there's nothing to be ashamed of about this history and about this holiday on our part you know there's nothing there's so we don't we don't need that so what we needed is walmart to say hey in a very serious way leave the red black green all that alone and we need it for y'all to say in honor of this holiday we are giving this amount of money to whoever we're putting this amount of money into black small uh, into black small businesses or whatever now would that still be a vanity moment because walmart is richer than um than than than, than several people's gods absolutely but it's still but still it's it's like white capital white supremacist capitalism doesn't even know how to handle the vanity of juneteenth they don't even know how to handle this so they're doing what you would normally do to soften and to hide and to sugarcoat and they and 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 honestly they do the same thing with religious holidays too because that's why we have an easter bunny and santa claus and we have all these things kind of hiding what it really means in order to market you don't need to do that with juneteenth because there's there's nothing to be ashamed of. There's 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 no stolen teeth in the mouths of, Ju- of Juneteenth. So just so you could just say what it is and uh, and honor it without turning it into a um turning into slogans and stuff. I'm just through. I'm just too through. I'm just through. I just there's no limit. And also because I think partly it's just like just leave us alone. Just leave us alone. So I have a question. Just leave us alone. I have a controversial question. Okay, because I'm very big, you know. I have I love I love black people, and but I'm very I'm very I have a big critique on, and I and also not even I have a big critique. I've observed big critiques on what people will call like black neoliberal folks, and then even like people who are like. I, I would still call it neoliberalism, but I feel like they're not like inherently political. But people who are like start uh, be entrepreneur, or they're like my I'm my they're, they're selling shirts with these slogans on them, and like I'm my ancestors' wildest dreams, and or 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 really like don't try me like I'm an ancestor. So I kind of feel like there's been a sect of black people who have participated in creating a capitalist space that is devoid of any type of like actual uh, just culture in any type of historic history but it's created like a a, a, a a capitalist space that's just really aesthetic that's really just like empty shallow words in order to get money and then I, so I'm wondering do you think that there's a sect of black people who have been a part of this tango of commercializing and, and capitalizing off of bl- like black aesthetic and history and now part of us 
I'm not saying like part of a black community is mad because of who did it, not because it was done. You know, mm-hmm. like 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 oh my goodness, like if shape. I mean, child, I don't got no hair, so I'm not ashamed to say. But if Shea Moisture did it, we would, like, not be as upset. But we're mad about who did it, not that it was done. Because there's something to me wrong about Juneteenth being on a napkin in general. You know what I mean? Where No, I think I think you're right. And I think there are some times when black folks get it wrong, too. But I think it's also, like, the difference between, you know, black folks who have businesses that are trying to be exploitative, that are really trying to exploit pain. Cause I don't, I don't think that, you know, that is singular to anyone. I think for me where I draw the line is, and I think it's culture, right? Like I remember, I mean, any concert, whether it's Janet Jackson, new edition, when I went to the Tupac exhibit, our people were out there selling t-shirts, but they was cute. They was cute. They're always cute. They're always cute. I mean, all the rest in peace gear that we get for, you know, when you go to when you go to a, a home going service. It's cute. Yeah, no, it definitely is cute. <laughs> no, it definitely is cute. I'm just think, I'm just thinking through because I do think that in no, the po- I think you're, I think you're right. I specifically think you're right. post 1970s. Yeah. I think there's a lot of black people who I think black culture changes depending on what class you are. There's some things that are just just global or universal, specifically in black America, about being black in America. But I think sometimes I'll see like some upper middle class black folks start businesses where I'm like, that's not really your culture. That's not really where you come, came from. It's mm-hmm. like we're living in a we're living in this really weird dystopian post Trayvon Martin world where it is profitable to to make a certain type of product or to aestheticize your business in a certain way, and you're participating in it. Um, in the same way, and you can get away with it because nobody's going to critique you because of the color of your skin, but anybody who looks a little bit beyond the color of your skin can, you know, I know, I can, I'm like, I'm like, no, my, my aunt, who's an AKA, who, that's a different black person than somebody, like, you know what I mean? I know the nuances, but the other people don't, and I'm, and I'm just wondering if, um, if, in a, in a little bit of a way, if our chickens didn't come home on a roost with this one, where I'm like, maybe if we put the t-shirts down. Maybe everybody, maybe everybody didn't need to make that, you know. Maybe if we put the t-shirts down. <laughs> I do think this, this, <laughs> this reminds me that it's like the, um, the approach is as important as the action. You know what I mean? That like sometimes people, you know, I think about not to do too much culture stuff around T.I., but T.I.'s son yelled at the person at Waffle House. Did you see this on the internet? King, I think his name is King. He like flipped out on like one of the people at Waffle House. And his and like no, I don't know what the Waffle House people did, but his response was, "I've more, I have enough money in my pocket to like buy you to buy this place to da 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 right." And and that become and that and it's like the and then Ti responds later, being like, you know, I just don't know why King thought it was important to go back and forth with people who work in like fast food, right? Like that was actually Ti, and it is a and like he is people are kikiing about it on the internet. But if a white person said that, it would be like a whole moment. But actually, that's like a classist and wrong. That's just like a Ti. Like you shouldn't you you like. Let's be clear that the people who are working at Waffle House are the people who made you famous. Like you don't exist without any of these people who you are like discarding so readily. Like you did not just emerge as somebody who like 
your whole thing is the trapped in it. Like it was, it was the poorest people who even created a moment for you to exist in. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think you're right, Miles, about the like, it's suddenly like the critique becomes absent in moments like that, where like nobody's reminding T.I. that like you don't exist without these people who you've so readily thrown away. Yeah. I think the emptying of Pan-African, it's almost like this like commercial Pan-African and like washing that we'll do with stuff that stops us from saying those certain things are still patriarchal, certain things are still classist, certain things are still homophobic, mm-hmm. transphobic. But it's like, no, we all black. And look at these fists. And look at this. And look at this color scheme. Like I'm like, no, that's not. That's we can't. We can't quantify Y'all mean, everything. You, you mean like when Jesse Smollett put his fist up in the courtroom? Like Child. <laughs> I said, if you don't put this waffle color Diara. fist down. <laughs> I said, you, I said, put that down. Put that waffle color fist down. No, that's not us. That is not us. That's a good example. That is right? not that's us. And, we, and, and at moments like that that are truly complicated, I think that black people sometimes have a hard time really wrestling with those moments because they're true they're truly complicated and you can't just you know i'm gonna i'm 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 trademarking this but you can't just quantify everything and just and then be like well we all black and we all in it together and now whatever no that's not we're so complicated and we're so varied and we have different experiences and, and black people have a class problem black people have a patriarchy problem black people have um an imperialist problem imperialism pro- problem okay. we have all these things too so we can't stop it at at race, you know, where we're doing ourselves a disservice. And I think that is a function of whiteness to make us stop ourselves at race because that's a form of dehumanization when we can't mm-hmm. deal with, when we can't deal with all the various ways that our, that our collective shadow cells arrive. Like that's, 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 right. that's horrible too. Ciao. But now I am thinking maybe I should make a little solo cut that says ciao. <laughs> <laughs> a little shut up. Shut up. Not a little solo cut that says ciao. Um, so my news is Isaiah Rashad. So I, Isaiah Rashad um, sat down with respected uh, interviewer you Joe. <laughs> you better please stop. Please, I had a punchline. I had a punchline. <laughs> 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 I had a punchline. No. So Isaiah Rashad sat down with Joe Budden. Um, shout out to Mood Music. I love. I do love those mix that mixtape series. I don't un- necessarily understand how. Some of our more sensitive topics land in the hands of some of our most insensitive uh, personalities. I'm like, it, like I, I tweeted, I was like, you know what? I wish people would either go to Oprah or go to Z-Way. Like, I'm, I hate this, like, Charlemagne, uh, Joe Budden in between that we do. I will say that Mike Tyson. Oh, Mike Tyson. I, I love Mike. Yes, Mike Tyson will go there with you. I remember I saw Mike Tyson um, interview Little Boosie, and I was like, yo, Mike Tyson's a really good interviewer. And I think mm-hmm. that... I think in order to do a, be a really good interviewer, what I've noticed is that you have to do self-reflection and you have to ask questions of yourself and you have to ask hard questions of yourself and deep questions of yourself because you can only interrogate another as far as you're willing to interrogate yourself. You, you're like, your mind won't even produce the questions. And I would notice that like with Charlemagne's and Joe Budden's, there's a lack of um, depth or... Very middle school locker room, hoo hoo hoo, and I'm like, wow, this is Isaiah Rashad. So the news is Isaiah Rashad, who is a TD rapper, um, who is he's on the same label as um, uh, SZA and Kendrick Lamar, and he had some uh, sex tapes leaked that showed him with with um, having sexual relations with with men. The controversy for me is I had to find out through the grapevine that they all white men, and I'm like, we, we lost another one, but like. <laughs> 
But they, but he was definitely, um, you know, he, he th- those tapes came up, and then he had a interview with Joe Budden where he really talked about his sexuality, talked about the experiences um, with that, talked talked really candidly about him having um, suicide ideation and having a suicide attempt because of that. He's always been very um, transparent in his music about his own bouts with depression and with and with darkness and 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 and, and growing maturely i'm like a big fan of um uh well, i'm i'm a i'm a moderate fan of isaiah rashad i really enjoyed his music but sometimes i'm like child we we got we I, I i gotta i gotta get get a little bit happier but um i've always loved that he kind of made a space in this like post um jay-z 444 world i feel like jay-z really like broke that open but like kind of made this space for like this like deeply inter and um uh this deeply self-reflective rapper who wasn't necessarily a part of this backpacker conscious death poetry jam lane but was still being able to have um be self-reflective and i see him as like a pilot of, of that world and yeah he talked about it and he talked about being sexually fluid and he talked about still looking for language to talk about what he's attracted to and saying that you know he's more attracted to a personality or it's more instinctual and it has nothing to do with genitals or 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 a specific gender expression it has to do with who that person is and i thought wow that's a beautiful thing to see because as a hip hop fan, I'm a Ghostface killer, Wu Tang, Q Tip, but sometimes Nas, Biggie fan, and just growing up loving the version of hip hop that I grew up with. I, it was just never in my realm of dreams that somebody like Isaiah Rashad would be having that conversation. And then that was the beauty of seeing him have a conversation with. Joe Budden, because I do love music. I do think that Joe Budden is one of the better lyricists and better um, rappers that um, that 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 the culture has produced, and I and I think that's how come so many rappers respect him. So I was like, yo, these two people having this conversation is really, really deeply powerful, and I never thought I would be able to see it. Just like when I see like. I actually might be making this up. I saw Saucy Santana somewhere, but I actually don't think it was on Drink Champs. But I was when I see Saucy Santana in certain spaces that he would, would that he would be in, I'm, I was like, wow! I never thought that I would be able to see somebody who is moving in the world like Saucy Santana and see them be celebrated in these places that were hip hop focused because hip hop focus has always been synonymous with transphobic and homophobic and it just brought joy to my heart to see it and I hope that this lets more people live in their truth and I hope that and and I but I but I do hope the other half of the my news what I want y'all to kind of discuss too is like what's going on with like where is that like why is the quality of interviewers so bad because the interview was like literally Isaiah Rashad was carrying the interview there were certain times where Isaiah Rashad was offering thoughts and perspectives that I was like, y'all, this is juice. Like, if somebody is sharing this with you, this is an opening to go, to, to just go deep. And then it just, then Joe Budden, he just gives this, these great thoughts and you can tell that he's ready to go to a certain place that is expansive and great for conversation. And then Joe Budden will be like, so were you drinking while you were having sex? Is that what happened? I'm like, how did we go here? Like, what is going on? And I did, and I and I just do think that rappers 
deserve better. There shouldn't be this like big dichotomy between either you're doing David Letterman or you're doing, you know, somebody who doesn't care. I think it should be like a little in between. I hope there's more people who love hip hop culture, who love black culture, who understand the culture, but then also love conversation, love having conversations that can expand the listener's um, consciousness because that sucks. I was like, yo, that that was a landmark interview and it sucks. I think you're on to something because I feel like it's not just hip hop. It's across the board there. Miles, this, this actually goes back to the previous conversation we were having around just like a space for black folks to talk about their own shit. And I feel like we don't have that many kind of expansive places to do that. Right. Like when you talk about I mean, like when you talk about outlets or talk shows, I mean, we have like Oprah kind of you have to be like so famous or Trevor Noah, which is still like, not really. Or, you know, like it, there's when you start to talk about TV opportunities, but then also just like print or digital, like we're starting, you know, we're starting to see more editors of color, more writers of color, more reporters of color. But we're, we're still, you know, kind of a, a, a super minority there as well. So it's kind of it's like um, the. Oh. The poem you gave us, Miles. Oh, oh Nikki, 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 Nikki Rosa, Nikki Rosa. Yeah, Nikki and Nikki Rosa, where she's like, I don't want to tell a white person my story anyway because they're not going to get it. But conversely, we don't have a lot of, you know, we still have work to do for to finding space for Black people to have these conversations. I mean, I mean, I guess like at this point, we're just like leaving tough conversations to like the Essence Festival and like anytime, you know. Yeah, uh, but you can't, you can't, you, you can't, <laughs> you know like, main stage yeah. certain conversations, you know, you can't, you can't main stage certain conversations, some certain, certain conversations that we have that barbershop thing that I see a lot of people doing, but it's like the, the, the barbershop is a great place where black men feel free to talk freely and give their opinions, but it's also often vacant of critical thought. So we need somebody who's really interested in saying, look, I want to leave the person who's listening to this conversation more challenged and maybe even seeing things differently and more expansively than, than, than when I found them. And I think that that's not, and I do think that's something that both as opposite as they are, Oprah and Z-Way both seem to have to want to do. One's doing it through humor and being and opinionated and, 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 and discomfort. And the other one is like, you know, we don't have somebody who, I need somebody who's going to look at Kanye and be like, were you silenced? <laughs> like, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like, were you silent or were you silenced? I need, I need somebody who's going to ask Kanye that about the Kardashians. We need to know. <laughs> I do think too, you know, I think that one of the things that the internet has done is that people no longer understand that this is work, you know? Like, Oprah worked for that craft. Oprah didn't just, like, wake up one day and, like, suddenly could ask questions. I mean, she obviously has, like, an innate gift and, like, a groundedness to her. But she had a lot of practice, a lot of feedback, a lot. I mean, the Oprah show is four days a week for 20 years. I mean, that's a lot. That is a lot, and I think that because podcasts are so easy and da-da, I think that people just wake up being like, I can do it. And you're like, no, 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 no. Z-Way, you know, Z-Way comes out of nowhere, right? She's like on, on Twitter, da-da-da. Z-Way is prepared. She like is quick-witted. She has like the perfect distillation of the question that just like gets there very quick. You know, like 
that is a skill. And I and I do think that one of the things that the internet has confused people to believe is like, just because you're famous or you did this one good thing really well, like you have this skill to carry and you're like, no, that's actually like a skill. So that's like one thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is like, um, and Miles, you sort of hinted on this, but it's like in DR, you touched on it in a different way is that you you actually have to be a little curious to be able to do that well. And some of these interviewers just aren't curious. Like, that's what makes Mike Tyson so interesting is that Mike is, like, legitimately curious, you know? He'll, like, ask the question. And, like, even Drink Champs. Like, Drink Champs is a little long. You're like, whoo, these hour-long YouTube. I'm like, y'all, just like Button. These are, like, long. I'm like, this is really long. I'll be interested to see if Wendy Williams gets that $100 million podcast deal. But but even Wendy was, like, I mean, too curious. Sometimes it was just nosy. You're like, okay, Wendy, this is a, a lot. But, like, you know, you don't know if the if the curiousness is grounded in anything real. Um, and I do worry about that. It'll be interesting to see who replaces James Corden uh, for the host of whatever that show, like the Late Late Show. I feel like they all have, like, the same name, some sort of the same name. So I'll be interested to see what happens, uh, what happens there. Yeah. And not to overly stand Z-Way, but just... Like you're like Oprah, like just like Oprah's. <laughs> it's so funny that I'm like literally seeing Oprah and Z way. I feel like they're like literally the opposites, like the sun and the moon. But um, Z way was, uh, she interned at the Colbert Report. A lot of people don't know, even before like the Instagram stuff, like where was really like getting hot and she was doing stuff with, um, with uh, like Instagram, those lives were happening. She had a YouTube channel, so this is like she she put in her like ten, she put in her whatever x amount of hours that people say you need. She really did those things, so I think that is also what you're seeing too. And I think that sometimes it takes a lot of hours to be an overnight success, and you kind of can see that with Z Way too. And I feel like most people are like Charlemagne did it, or this person did it, and let me put, you know. I can do it too, and I can order from Amazon my podcast equipment, and that'll be it. I'm like, no, let's let's handle these stories with care, child. My news is about uh, dental care in, in prison. So uh, we've talked about before in the podcast that dental care is not included in health care. So if you have health insurance, you normally have to get dental care as a separate add-on because it's not included. But I didn't know, and the Marshall Project covered it. This The reporting is called I Have No Teeth. Michigan prisoners say long wait to see dentists is humane. And what they talk about is like so shocking to me that that they they describe stories that say that when people get their teeth pulled or you know one one story they got all their teeth pulled essentially and what the what the prison did is just gave them soft food and mushy food instead of helping them to get dentures. Uh, in Michigan, one of the policies is that they have they're like two a two year wait before they can get dental care. There are other people saying that they've had their teeth pulled when they could have been fixed by the doctors and. Uh, it really just blew my mind. What, what the article also talks about that I didn't know is that Florida prisons won't do crowns or bridges. Texas won't do dentures for a lot of people, and they'll just give people pureed food. In the federal system, people can't get dentures unless they're sentenced to three years. In Nebraska, the state used to have a policy banning new prisoners from routine dental care. And you're like, the, the punishment is being separated from society. It's like the least we can do is make sure that if your tooth cracks or whatever happens, that you actually get dental care. And, you know, for the the cost that we're already paying to incarcerate people, the money's already there. I think about right. We're doing a whole campaign on Rikers. Rikers spends half a million dollars, five hundred and fifty five thousand dollars per person a year. You can get I mean, we're already paying for all types of things. You can give them dental care and, you know, people are suing uh, in Michigan, thank God. But 
in Michigan, at the time that they covered this, there was an 8,000 person dental waiting list. And, you know, it's why people talk about prisons and jails as the largest mental health facilities in the country. But you also think about uh, what it means for healthcare. And, you know, it's like, you know, people who don't have access incarcerated are likely not going to have it when they get out. We want everybody to be healthy. This is a reminder that everybody deserves healthcare, uh, no matter where they are in the system. But I literally just hadn't, um, I hadn't known this. I hadn't thought about it. And it really blew my mind. Yeah, that, you know, of course that it w- was super interesting. And it's another like symptom of the cruelty of the prison system. And uh, my mind just goes straight to how certain health and specifically teeth and stuff like that, how that creates outliers too. I feel like I actually talked, like a couple of years ago, me and you talked about that. I feel like there was a woman who like literally made a book on like teeth and um, and, and teeth in class and stuff like that. So I think about how if you're, if you are somebody who want, who, who goes back into society and now you have this, you know, now you have like a, a teeth problem or, or whatever it is. And, um, how that can then further dictate where you, where you are and what you and what you're able to do. I just think about the results of like once you do establish freedom. And I just think the other thing that you said that really resonate with me and it's like very simple <laughs> how you said it, but you but you just said like the the punishment is being separated from society. Pe- like period. Everything else is an act of cruelty. You know, and I think that even certain people in certain prison abol- uh, abolitionists are even saying that they're, you know, being separated from society in certain ways is, 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 is an act of cruelty. But just where it is right now, like being separated from society is the punishment, you know, and I think that anything else is 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 really making sure that people stay intertwined in in this system you know so yeah my mind went straight to class and 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 how people look at people with crooked teeth or no teeth or or these different things and how that can dictate your 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 class mobility your yeah uh, what you're able to uh, establish once you're out and how it's kind of making sure that people stay in a certain um cycle so i found an article that's on nih.gov which you know, just the Institute of Health that's part of the United States government that is supposed to give instruction and direction to, I don't know, other agencies within states, like whoever's listening in Michigan. And in this article, it talks about the two-way association between oral and mental health. In one direction, the prospect of dental treatment can lead to anxiety and phobia. In the other, many psychiatric disorders, such as severe mental illness, affective disorders and eating disorders are associated or are associated with dental disease. Left untreated, dental diseases can lead to, to teeth loss such that people with severe mental illness have 2.7 times the likelihood of losing all their teeth compared with the general population. You know, then it just goes on and on, yada, 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 with, I don't know, science and facts, etc. So I guess what is hard for me to, to sort of distill is this is actually science. Right. It's just it is just plain old science. And if the state or the government is actually responsible for human beings, then it makes sense. They would put some science to work in the care of these human beings. Right. So I just I I think, yes, to the conversation around these folks are being treated inhumanely. This is you know, this is cruel and unusual punishment. Like, I think, yes, like all of that 
is so clear and obvious, but what's even more obvious to me is the connection between mental health and dental care, which has been, I don't know, there's like a bajillion page article in NIH that you could, everyone can look to, including the Department of Corrections in Michigan. So I just, for me, I just, I, that's, that's the part that I don't get is just these very factual medical associations um, that if people are in the, the business of caring for people, because honestly, that's what a corrections department is in the business of doing, right? Particularly corrections departments in the United States of America, where we have nearly 3 million people incarcerated. If that's what y'all want to do, and that's where y'all want to put people, I don't know, read some somewhere, do something. It's obvious. And anybody that's had a toothache, anybody that's had the simplest toothache, it is completely debilitating. You can't sleep. You can't eat. Come on. I was about to say, no, you definitely can connect mental health. It's all like, I'm just like, it's so, they're just lazy. Just lazy. You're lazy at your jobs. Lazy. Anywho, thanks for bringing that to the Padre. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn this thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton. For the stay. This week, we welcome award-winning journalist Mark Lamont Hill and Tar Brusa to chat about their book, Seen and Unseen, Technology, Social Media, and the Fight for Racial Justice. Now, social media has affected a lot of people. It really changed my life when I think about the protests. It changed our lives when we think about how we're able to organize and get together and tell stories. And in this book, they sort of talk about the arc. I learned a lot. You know, you know I always get worried sometimes when I read some of these movement books because I'm like, okay, I already been there. But this book, I actually learned something. So hope you will too. Here we go. Mark and Todd, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. It is a pleasure, man. Good to talk to you. Absolutely a pleasure. Now, what's so, Mark? You know, you've been a friend of the pod for a long time. I've known you since the protests began. But how did the two of you get connected? What's what's your story? How did you uh, start to work together? We became friends in uh, 2014, 2015 after the Ferguson uprisings. I was working on my book, Nobody. Uh, we had the same agent. And my agent suggested that Ty would be a great person to write the foreword to nobody. Uh, But we went beyond that. We just started to talk. And and he's such an excellent writer and excellent thinker uh, that we exchanged lots of ideas. And at some point we said, we're going to write a book together, especially after I saw that brilliant uh, foreword he wrote for nobody. And then Mike Brown's killing turned into Freddie Gray's killing, turned into Ahmaud Arbery's killing, turned into George Floyd's killing. And we both kind of sat down via phone during the pandemic and said, we got to tell the story of why and how this is happening. And it seemed like the right time to think through with somebody with a sense of history, uh, how George Floyd was not only killed and how Breonna Taylor was killed, but how we were able to fight for justice uh, and and what led to it. Well, first of all, it's been one of the nicer things of the past five, seven years in my life to to be connected to, to Mark who, um, 
I truly enjoy, and we have very good conversations about about um, important things. I'd say, and uh, uh, we did when when we were going through the process with nobody, and 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 I would say even more so now. I mean, you know, 2020 was a very disturbing year in multiple, multiple ways. And um, it was a great comfort to me that we could, uh, Mark and I could talk together and kind of hash out some uh, understanding of what was happening before our eyes. And and eyes would be a good uh, choice of phrase here, because uh, what we found was that the nature of our constantly changing technology, including the cell phone, the cell phone camera, the social media, and all the multiple uh, generations of, of, of technological changes that those those pieces, those tools have have forced upon us, uh, has changed the conversation around uh, one of the most important subjects in American history, which is of course race. And it's empowered people. It's also uh, empowered some of the wrong people. It has uh, allows us to see the lives of of some people who have been unseen for a very long time. That's, of course, implicit in our title. And um, uh, we thought that it was important that we understand more about both the events that have been happening uh, over the past few years and their relationship to a very troubling history in America that has played out in our, our, through our media, through photographs, still photographs, through film, through movies, uh, th- through uh, photojournalism, through the uh, cable television, the internet. Uh, the cell phone camera, social media, and all this that have, have actually been the stage upon which uh, we see these these stories playing out. Boom. So let's talk about let's talk about the book. Uh, you know, the book you take us through so much, right? So George Floyd. You talk about Rittenhouse. You talk about Trayvon in some ways. Mike Brown. Can can you? What's the through line here? What does this add to the conversation about race and justice and policing? And I say that because. In 2014, the world was waking up writ large to these issues, and then it was 2020, and that was sort of like a watershed moment where I feel like these this conversation was no longer a niche. And now 2022, how are you hoping that the book helps to round out or add to or push people? Like, what is, what's the thrust on this one? You know, I, I think one of the things uh, for me is figuring out the why of, of this all and not just the how. You know, I've written before in, in the last couple of books about state violence and about policing. You know, I'm an abolitionist and I've, I've written about some, some of my abolitionist vision. You've written extensively about this kind of stuff and you've spoken extensively about this stuff. So there's a, there's a lot of energy around that. But I think part of what uh, Todd and I wanted to do, and we talk about this in the first chapter of the book, is the why. Why now? You know, you could not have told me, DeRay, when we were in Ferguson, that Mike Brown wasn't the watershed moment of our generation. And you couldn't have told me, honestly, after Trayvon was killed, that that might not have been the watershed moment. But, with each, but then each time there was something different. And when George Floyd is killed and suddenly there's international protests, suddenly people are talking about uh, defunding and, 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 and no-knock warrant laws and anti-no-knock warrant laws and such. The question was, why now? And one of the things that we discovered was the role of media and technology. And I think that the role of media technology is one that we haven't given enough consideration to. There are plenty of people on the street who will tell you, oh, yeah, black people have been getting shot all the time. But, you know, it's only now that it's getting videotaped. That's a fact. But 
what we haven't unpacked is the nuances of what makes a George Floyd resonate with people or what makes a Jackson or Kent State resonate with people. And so we wanted to unpack that story. And it's not just about video. We talk about campaigns. We talk about what it, what it took to get Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, or, or for that matter, George Zimmerman uh, in, in arrested. What, what it takes to get Breonna Taylor's family some sense of justice or accountability from the state. It takes a lot of stuff and media and technology plays a big part in that. But the other thing that we wanted to tell is the story of how oppressed people throughout history have always done that. This isn't new. The cell phone isn't the first time that we that we use technology and media for justice. And neither is the video camera. Rodney King wasn't the first. We can go all the way back to Frederick Douglass and see that. And so we think that by by adding this piece of the story, we not just we don't just give people a fuller sense of history, but we also empower them with the tools necessary to use to make future actions, to do future organizing, to tell different stories with the technologies and platforms that may come that we don't even know about yet. You know, uh, DeRay, the, every new technology, when it's introduced, has a sort of shock period for the first few um, years. Uh, and then we begin to get an understanding of the vocabulary and uh, how the it's usually how it plays out in practice, in a sense. It's how we how the, the these new media tools are received, how they're used, that we begin to develop a kind of vocabulary that that and syntax that we need to understand. And um, I think that's happening now with the, the, the cell phone cameras, happening with social media. Uh, it happened with the photograph, uh, uh, still photograph, as, as Mark was alluding to, with Frederick Douglass, um, who was the most photographed man in the 19th century, more than Lincoln. It happened with uh, photojournalism. You know, it happened um, with the, uh, the introduction of, of, of video. It happened then again now with the notion of cell phone video, with that notion of the democratization of our technology tools. And so it's important for us to uh, know two things, it seems to me. One is how to receive these videos, how to understand the social media, how to get a sense of our vocabulary. The, the other thing is to recognize, because Americans are kind of an ahistorical people. We always are looking forward, right? And we need to understand the historical antecedents to these stories that have happened over the past few years. They don't happen in a vacuum. The, the, the visual vocabulary that we employ to tell stories comes out of our history. And you can see in what's happening in the past few years, the uh, legacy of uh, uh, Ida B. Wells. You can see the legacy of Douglas. You can see the legacy, the dark legacy of uh, D.W. Griffith and the birth of a nation. These things are all part of the conversation. Uh, the Civil War is being refought and it has been refought numerous times since the actual battles happened in the middle of the 19th century. We need to understand that as a people, understand that whether the subliminal messages as well as the overt messages, and then that's, of course, again, plays into our title of seen and unseen. I will say one of the things that you all uncovered that, you know, I've read almost all these books and I'm like, okay, we got new movement stuff coming out, is uh, the you talk about Ida B. Wells so much. Can you can you help us understand, like, why does Ida B. Wells, like, why is that, why is she so present in the book? I, I think she's present in the book for a few reasons. One, Todd and I are both also journalists. Uh, and there's no way to talk about modern journalism um, without talking about Ida B. Wells Barnett. And I think there's a way that Black women are often erased from uh, the histories of disciplines and fields and institutions. I'm an anthropologist. Uh, and it's possible for people to get a PhD in anthropology and not talk about Zora Neale Hurston, one of the most important 
uh, anthropologists of the 20th century. Uh, and so similarly, I don't want people to ever, and Todd teaches journalism classes as do I, I don't want people to ever not say Ida B. Wells' name uh, when we talk about journalism. I think say her name can't just be when women die. It has to be in every area of our lives. Uh, but there's also a way that Ida B. Wells Barnett is also a kind of steward of a tradition uh, of truth telling and, expo- and and creating a kind of moral uh, outrage uh, that leads to public response to state violence, right? And state sponsored violence. When you have black people being lynched and those photographs are of the lynchings are being placed on postcards, people are celebrating. This is an American pastime. Uh, people taking body parts as souvenirs. Those images are being used to haunt and terrorize black people. But those same images in the hands of Ida B. Wells Barnett become part of a moral mission to expose the ugly underside of American democracy. Those people that Malcolm X referred to as the victims of American democracy. And her efforts, her journalism, her storytelling, her advocacy, her courage uh, helped to stop the American lynching project. Uh, And so for me, she's central because she's kind of a forerunner to the campaign, but she's also a forerunner to using video and the spectacle of violence as a way to change the game in the same way that Dr. King uses the spectacle of violence on the Pettus Bridge or the spectacle of violence stirred the American hearts with Rodney King, even though we didn't get the justice we wanted. Ida B. Wells gives us a kind of classic example as a forerunner of this tradition. So for me, she's just shot all through this book, sometimes by name and sometimes just her spirit, because we want to we want to continue that tradition. You know, we talk about a lot about also, Duray, the the power of the video, uh, but it's uh, uh, it, one of the powers of the video is that is direct, right? You see the actually what happened on the streets of Minneapolis uh, two years ago. But there's also a tremendous power and a necessary power to the curators of the video, to those who show us what we might not see. And mm-hmm. this is what Ida B. Wells did. I mean, as Mark just referenced, the same photographs that were used to herald the spectacle of lynching were used by Ida B. Wells to show the horror, the barbarism, and the shame of lynching. And so we need these people. We, we, you know, the, the, one of the lessons of the book is that is that uh, we cannot uh, uh, say that in an age where we have direct access to information, direct access to video, that it tells the story completely. We need people to lead us through these videos. We need people to show us what they mean. We need people to do like what Mark and I did in this book, which is to, to indicate the, the, the long historical tradition out of which some of these uh, movements and stories and events happen. I mean, this is not the first time that there's violence on black people in American history, but some people need to be told that. And the fact that it, it created such an outcry is is because we've seen we 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 found a new way to see it. You know, each generation has a new way of phrasing it. It's like singing the same song but with different lyrics, and that's what our new tools allow us to do. But it's the same story. You know, one of the things that I was it almost was like you you all were psychic because uh, you talk about the great replacement theory and all this stuff in the book that was you know this book was done way before. Uh, what happened in Buffalo? Can you talk about why you why you chose to include white replacement theory in in the book? 
Uh, and like, how would you explain that to people? It's been more popular for people to talk about because of Buffalo and because of the white supremacist shooting. And, and would love to also talk about, uh, you talk about black nationalist views on segregation earlier in the book, like much earlier, like page 45, 46. So yeah, so I'd love to know about those two, but I'd love to start with like white replacement theory, why you chose to put it in and you did it before it became a mainstream topic like it is today. It, it's interesting to think about it as a mainstream topic today because Throughout American history, part of what has animated white nationalism uh, and many forms of anti-Black violence has been uh, a belief by white Americans, a kind of white supremacist myth. And there are many white supremacist myths, right? The, the myth uh, of the lost cause we talk about in the book as well, the idea that the South was fighting a noble battle that was only lost because of superior Northern weaponry, but it was a battle over states' rights and, and, and state liberty. It wasn't about slavery and that they were the moral stewards of the nation and they just lost. I mean, this is, this is the kind of stuff that animated and created a uh, birth of a nation, you know? Um, so, so these theories can, are persistent. White replacement theory is a theory that emerges more recently, but it's just a remix of a set of white, anxieties, white supremacist anxieties about black folk that have always existed, right? Whether whether it was, a, initially these fears were about uh, Eastern European Jews. They were about, uh, at one point they were even about Irish folk. They were, they've been about Italians at different moments. Uh, anyone who was not racialized as white uh, was often uh, seen as uh, part of either a conspiracy or a plan or some unfortunate demographic reality that was going to displace white people. Even when we look at uh, the beginning of the kind of Trump support, right? I'm talking about before Trump is, is, is in office, even before he runs for office, there are a bunch of people who are saying we're losing our country. The Mexicans are taking our job. Part of what Trump is able to do is play into a particular type of white anxiety about, about demographic threats. And so it, it, I'd love to say that Todd and I are you know, geniuses. Todd is, I'm not, but, <laughs> no way. but, but honestly, any clear reading of history will tell you that every, every couple, every few years, white people are going to bug out about the fear that they're being replaced, exchanged, marginalized, etc. cetera. Uh, and it always leads to violence. It always leads to bizarre public policy uh, proposals. Uh, it's, it's quite, it's quite, a, it's quite a predictable, uh, predictable thing, quite frankly. Well, you know, the uh, uh, replacement theory, I think, uh, Mark is saying so eloquently it was has been around us with different names, obviously, right? I mean, um, and the, one of the ironies is that black people have been on on this land uh, as long as white people have been. You know, I mean, it's so the idea of replacing. Um, I'm not sure who's replacing who. I mean, it reminds me of the conversation between um, James Baldwin and and uh, Bobby Kennedy um, mm -hmm. uh, in in 1963 when. Bobby Kennedy asked Baldwin to put together a group of of black cultural leaders to come talk to him about the what's happening in the nation. This is right around the time of the, the Birmingham church bombing and the unrest in Birmingham that where we all those incredible photographs come from of the fire hosing and and one, by the way, of a policeman with his foot on a woman's neck. Um, but one of the things that that Bobby Kennedy says to James Baldwin is what as, as is often phrased what do black people want what do the negroes want and he says you know um i i i suffered like you did i'm an irish american um 
And I uh, and I had to wait a long time. But now we have an Irish American in the White House. Maybe in 40 or 50 years, there'll be a black man in the White House. And Baldwin says, well, that's interesting because I my people have been in this country longer than the Irish have been in this country. And you're asking me to wait. Let them know. Let so, them know. <laughs> and you think about that and you think about the replacement theory notion, which is at the heart of a lot of um, right-wing movements in Europe. I mean, when the, when the neo-Nazis are marching in Charlottesville, they're chanting uh, uh, um, blood and soil, which is a direct translation of Bluten Broden, the German Nazi slogan that they, they claim for, uh, for the, um, the, the conquering of, the, uh, of, of Hitler's era. So you see that, the, and, and, and for that matter, the birth of a nation would even talk about that. The birth of a nation is really the story about white people recognizing uh, that black people are the real problem and that they got in the way of our noble experiment here and that they divided us. They made us a polarized country, familiar phrase in these days, right? And that, that uh, uh, the, the day that the black man arrived on these shores was the day that, that we were divided as a people and we need to come together again. We need to recognize, and as they're portrayed uh, in, as they portray in uh, The Birth of a Nation, that black people are lazy, stupid, corrupt, fraudulent, dirty, uh, that they're less than human. And this on, all on top of the um, failures of reconstruction by which to say, look, Northerners, you made a mistake. You gave them power. We need to take it back. We allowed them to replace us. And we can't let that happen. I wanted to read, um, there's a passage in the book that I loved and I wanted to read it and get you all to expand on it a little bit. So on page 203, you say, as Eric Ward of the Southern Poverty Law Center has written, the success of the civil rights movement is beaten, is beating back Jim Crow in the 1950s and 1960s, embarrassed the white supremacist ideology in part because the triumph of a Black-led movement built by strong leadership and effective organizing challenged the well-worn caricature of the docile, passive, ignorant Negro. Surely the inferior race could not have done this alone. Can you talk about why that, why, you know, when I was reading it, I was like, I, I don't think I've ever heard somebody summarize um, sort of the push and attack on white supremacy in this way. And I wanted to talk to you all about it. Yeah, I mean, I first will give credit to Eric Ward there. Uh, we were quoting him. Um, uh, the the horror uh, comes, you know, I mean, look, this is not the first time that um, uh, uh, success in the black community has been greeted with um, uh, surprise um, that uh, and an affront to the ideology of white supremacy by showing that black people could actually run businesses, black people could build schools, black people could uh, 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 have peaceful, uh, responsive government. Um, and, and the white supremacist response traditionally has been just to burn down those places, uh, Black Wall Street. I mean, uh, or uh, Ida B. Wells uh, herself, close friends of hers who are successful business people in Memphis, uh, after she publishes her one of her uh, many reports about the, the uh, injustices of lynching, come home and she comes home and finds the, um, th that the, those businesses have been burned to the ground. So this idea that, that um, there's something that can be a, a negation of the white supremacist ideology, it's like, it's like um, I think we actually make this reference in here, it's like there's, there, there's been a befouling of the blood, right? Um, 
that uh, that we can't tolerate success because it, it 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 negates our very principle that we stand on. Can't tolerate black success. I mean, because it because it negates the very principle that we built our society on. And that's kind of a chilling idea. So it's not just that that um, uh, the nation is is uh, uh, um, uh, uh, that access to power, access to capital has been denied to black people. It's that there are people who are rooting for black people to fail, rooting for them to fail. And disturbing, uh, it's disturbing to them when they see black people succeed. Oh. Now, one of the obvious things that we didn't talk about is that there is a whole part of the book that is about George Floyd's life. And uh, all of it was new to me. I didn't know any of it. I had, I'd seen like mentions of some of the things in newspaper articles, but this just sort of like catalogs it. And one thing that struck me was, um, was in some ways how how many parts of society had failed him over time that like you know that by the time we meet george floyd it is a colossal failure which is the police failing him but there were so many other touch points in his life can you talk about can you just help us understand that better and then was the intent to show the way that a system bore down on one person's life that then changed the world absolutely i mean there's parts of george floyd's life that have been seen the police violence the knee uh, on his neck, um, his desperate cries for his mother. Um, we got to see it. The counterfeit bill, the scene in the store, we got to see it. But so much of what makes America operate in the way that it does in terms of injustice, inequality, and unfreedom is the fact that there are so many things that are unseen. By the time we get to George Floyd, and by the time we see that scene, George Floyd has already been failed by a school system, by a, a medical establishment that doesn't allow him to recover from addiction, from a uh, criminal justice system that doesn't produce the kind of uh, rehabilitative possibilities that it alleges to. Uh, he has not been given access to a labor market uh, in a way that allows him to, to live with a living wage and thrive. Uh, and it's not just him. I and mean, we can make the same case. Uh, with uh, uh, Janiqua Charles, right? The woman who's like, you about to lose your job. We see her as a spectacle who, who, who's making a meme and a, and a theme song for, for, our, for our jokes and our activism. But we don't realize all the things that went into her life in terms of a, 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 the addiction, in terms of uh, family uh, structures, et cetera. We, we don't get to see that stuff. But it's not just that we don't get to see it in the sense that we don't have access to people's personal lives. It's that we don't get to see it in the sense that we don't necessarily fully appreciate the way that systems and structures exact so much pressure on people that by the time they, quote unquote, fail in public or, or fall short or make a mistake, that they've already been harmed and, and, and compromised by, by, by these very same systems. And so our goal in the book was what, to tell a full story. George Floyd's story doesn't begin and end with a knee on his neck. It just doesn't. You know, Ahmaud Arbery's story doesn't begin and end with that that jog. You know, Breonna Taylor's story doesn't begin and end when the police kick in her door. The reason why we have to do this is because so much energy is put into prosecuting wars and campaigns against these people. So it's not just that these are neutral, objective bodies that are that are killed by the state. It's that after they're killed by the state, you'll have a Candace Owens tell us how awful George Floyd was. You'll have somebody on Fox News tell us that Trayvon Martin had weed in his system. You'll have somebody constantly try to convince us either explicitly or implicitly that these people were somehow worthy of the fate that met them because they weren't good enough. 
And so, you know, our desire to tell their stories, one for history's sake, people need to remember these people as they actually were. And we say in the book, he's not a hero, but he was a martyr. Um, it's because we want to humanize, um, but also because we want people to understand the interconnectedness of these relationships and these stories and these experiences and these systems. Let's remember that, that um, uh, uh, Floyd, as we say in the book, uh, grew up in Houston's third ward, a neglected neighborhood that once had been a grand neighborhood. But once the interstate came in and drove out white flight, there was white flight and the then the, the basically the uh, abandonment of those neighborhoods because the interstates allowed them to get into and out and out of Houston without actually uh, populating the neighborhood, without giving it any commerce, without uh, introducing new new investment. Uh, then then George Floyd goes lives in the Nor- Norris White Cuny homes. Cuny homes. Uh, uh, Norris White Cuny was a, a Reconstruction era uh, a politician, a black politician who. They don't mention, but was pushed out. Um, and uh, the Republican Party, as it became, um, uh, went through the Lily, Lily White movement to try to attract the Democrats back into the party, um, uh, CUNY was abandoned. Uh, then he goes to Jack Yates High School, a, a, a name for a preacher in, in, um, in, in Houston who had built the Emancipation Park around the same time that they were uh, uh, renaming the hospital down the road uh, for a Confederate general. So you see that you know there are all these themes played out. He's living in the Norris White community homes. He goes to Jack Yates High School. He's in a Houston that's a neighborhood that's been abandoned. Um, he's on public assistance. Um, uh, the the idea that he arrives there uh, in Minneapolis without all that past, uh, without his prison record, without his his time you know pleading in the church uh, uh, for, for um, comfort, um, that he arrives there uh, and we now judge him according to some standard that determines whether uh, anyone deserves to have the indignities that were thrust upon him. I mean, these are the themes that we're tracking in the book. And it's important to know the historical context. It's important to know why George Floyd's life was so desperate by the time he gets to Minneapolis. So there are two questions we ask everybody, and I'll uh, ask one now, is the first is, uh, what's what do you say to people who are like they did it all and the world hasn't changed yet? Right? They called, they emailed, they testified, they read your book, they read my book, they read your other book, they went to your classes, and they're like the world is still as crappy as it was when they started. What do you say to those people? People whose hope is challenged in moments like this. Man, that that's that's the million dollar question. Um, so I, I'll say I'll say a couple quick things. One, I remain a prisoner of hope, and I think hope as you pointed out, is the thing, not optimism, but hope. Optimism is a belief that things are just going to work out. That's not what we believe. Optimism ignores systems and structures and challenges. That's not what we believe in. Hope, that's optimism. Hope, hope is saying that the world is bad, but we fight anyway. I believe as a prisoner of hope that at the moments where things seem their darkest, we can find possibilities and evidence that what we're doing is working. The person says we organize, we teach, we learn, we study, we fight, we vote, and nothing happens. I would tell them to look differently. When Dr. King, on April 3rd, 1968, gives his final speech, he says, only when it is darkest can we see the stars. At these moments where it's dark, that's where we have to look for the star. George Floyd is executed. People say nothing changed. But people took to the streets and we saw police defunding. We took to the streets and we saw a transformative change in, in who constitutes city councils. 
People say we marched in Ferguson and nothing came from it, but something did come from it. You can't run for mayor or, or, or and not say who your police commissioner is going to be. And that'd be a serious issue. You can't run for police commissioner and not have a conversation about body cameras, not have a conversation about no knock warrants. We are pushing the conversation. People say abolition is a pipe dream. But right now it is common sense to say we should get rid of bail. It is common sense to say that uh, private prisons don't make sense. It is common sense to say that people like Khalif Browder and Sandra Bland should not have been in jail simply because they didn't have enough money not to be in jail. These are moves that only are happening because of our advocacy. It's only happening because we struggle. These laws are co-signed in ink. They're written in blood, the blood of the martyrs we talk about in this book. And I know our hopes get dashed. I know we get disappointed all the time. You can't be an activist or organizer and not get your heart broken all the time. But if we do not fight, if we do not struggle, if we do not battle, then we do not get the minimal gains, the small slices of joy, the victories that do save lives that we have gotten. And so for me, our faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. Uh, that's very eloquent, and I'll add what I can do it, which is that um, you know when the when the uh, neo Nazis are marching in Charlottesville, mm. they come a day before their before their rally, and they march. They've come there really to try to uh, to protest the uh, city council's decision to take down the Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson statues. But when they arrive there on that Friday night, they march impromptu out to the campus of the University of Virginia to visit the statue of Thomas Jefferson, a very complicated figure in American history, the author of All Men Are Created Equal, who nonetheless kept slaves his entire life, fathered children with one of them. And when they get there, they find to the statue, they find there's a group of students from the University of Virginia who have circled the statue and have locked arms to protect it from the neo-Nazis. Jefferson's complicated because there's things that we can believe in and there's things that neo-Nazis can believe in. And I say that that means that we've had this battle going for a long, long time, and it's going to go over a long time from now. I believe in an active liberty. I think that's what the founders were describing to us. An active liberty, meaning that in terms that, that we write about in this book, what do, we, what do we say to those who, as you just gave us the question, what do you say to those who say we did all that and it, and it, and it didn't achieve the result? Do it again. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. You can't tell the truth and then sit back in your easy chair. You have to keep on telling the truth. I had a funny moment this morning. I was in a parking lot at a grocery store, and this guy walked up to me. I've not seen 10, 15 years, something like that. And he said, I saw your book. He said, keep it up. Keep on doing it, please, for all of us. Keep on doing it. Boom. And the last question is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Todd? Mm, I know that you would do that. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm going to say that the piece of advice that I think I hold very dear is um, was, was actually more in the character of my father than it was in anything he said. Uh, my father was a very genuine man. Um, and I took from that the importance of being yourself, of uh, finding the right way to um, to show yourself to the world, to be to be um, to be genuine, 
And as I'm saying this, I'm reminded of that of a story that is that is exemplary of that. Uh, and it relates back to that episode I told you earlier about Bobby Kennedy and the and and James Baldwin. Because one of the people that James Baldwin invites to that meeting is Lorraine Hansberry. And Lorraine mm-hmm. Hansberry, uh, author of uh, the playwright who authored uh, Raisin in the Sun, um, is not comfortable with Bobby Kennedy's answers to the questions. Is 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 feels as though he does not see the suffering that they are describing. Wants him to encourage the president to do a big symbolic gesture by walking school children, black school children, to school in in um in Birmingham. And Bobby thinks that's a silly gesture. And as she gets up to leave, there's tension hanging in the room. And she says something that, again, references that picture that I, I told you about earlier, about the policeman with his foot on the neck of a woman in Birmingham during the rioting there. And she says, um, thank you, Miss, thank you, Mr. Attorney General. And with all the dignity that she showed, she said, uh, I, I, something on the order, I'm paraphrasing only slightly. I hope you understand that we're going to disagree. But for me, it's just that I can't tolerate a civilization that tolerates that photograph of a black woman with a white police officer's foot on her neck. And Baldwin says that she smiled then at Bobby Kennedy. And as Baldwin said, I was glad she wasn't smiling at me. That expression of staying genuine while still being dignified and polite and and being yourself, not backing down, that's a message that I try to tell myself every day. Mine, mine is is. I was trying to think of the many messages I've gotten from people, but I think about um, something Jesse Jackson said to me, and it was quite simple. We'd been organizing somewhere, and we'd we'd actually gotten a victory, and he just said, "When we fight, we win." Um, he said, "When we fight, we win," and that always stuck with me. He said, "There's never been a battle that Black people have fought for that we didn't win eventually." but that there has never been a victory that we've gotten that we didn't have to fight for. So that keeps, it sobers me in a way, right? Because it it stops me from expecting magic to fall out of the sky. It stops me from thinking about uh, progress as state largesse, you know, but it's always going to be that our interests are going to converge with the states and then we get an advance because they need to, because we fought. Um, When we fight, we win. It tells me that victory is possible, but it also tells me it may not come in my lifetime. Some of the victories that we achieved last year or 10 years ago are victories that our great-grandmothers died for, but they fought so that we could win. So it allows me to have a certain kind of revolutionary patience as I think about things. When we fight, we win. It tells me that I have to do something, that I can't sit on the couch, that I can't just pull a lever once a year, although I need to pull that lever once a year and vote or, or twice a year or however many times a year, but that the fight takes place in multiple fronts. It takes place in advocacy. It takes place in policy. It takes place in organizing. It takes place in teaching. It takes place in what we buy and what we refuse to buy. All of it is the fight. And I'm committed to fighting. And even when I feel at my lowest, I recommit to fighting because I know that when we fight, we win. Boom. Awesome. We consider you friends of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Everybody get the book. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. 
Pod Save the Brew is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Veronica Simonetti and executive produced by me. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson.